Welcome, dear listener, to Astonishing Tales of the Highly Improbable. I'm your host, Lloyd Allen, and this is the New Albion Orchestra. back, dear listeners. Today's broadcast is brought to you by Sadie's Sweet Shop. I adore Sadie's, but it's no secret I adore sugary goodness. Muffins, cookies, cakes, candy. Who can take a sunrise? Uh, my boyfriend used to sing that to me. I loved that. Well, my old boyfriend, I guess. Who even knows where he is now? He's He's probably long moved on. Good for him. Probably for the best. I wish him every happiness there is. God knows what he's hitting on now. Anyway, drown your sadness in sugary yumminess. I would eat an entire sack of Sadie's delicious cookies if I still had taste buds, or a tongue, or a functional digestive system. Not pooping is really not so bad. Oddly, you do miss it every now and then, that, that meditative moment in your day. A little break in the reading room. But overall, one of the few, the only, I dare say, advantage to being cruelly trapped in the body of Pinocchio if Geppetto had been a feeble imbecile is that you never have to worry about pooping again or putting up with unwanted odors. Yes, go ahead. Pass all the gas you want, I truly do not care. I am finally over and above such drudgeries of daily life. Say what you will, trapped in a marionette, unable to enjoy food, never again able to see the only man I truly loved. No food, no sex, not even a simple bloody massage. Sitting here in this lunatic asylum of a city, which I have plans for, by the way, not even the sweet oblivion of sleep is at my disposal. Well, say what you want for all of it. At least I do not have to smell your odious, gaseous emission. So, yay for life. What do you mean? How can I be salty today? I don't have flesh. There's no sweat. Well, sweat is salty. You called me salty. I don't sweat. I can't be salty. I'm wood, not food. Well, I don't understand. Uh, never mind. Uh, anyway, today is actually a pleasurable day. For you. Because today we begin a new story. Well, okay, it's sort of a continuation of the last story, but uh, from a new direction. Uh, called Jill and the Ghost, Part 1, Mavis. Mavis put a lot of preparation and care into her transition into Crazy Cat Lady. She clearly was not going to stop with the acquisition of a single cat, but there was a point over which it stopped being cute and eccentric and became worrisome and pathetic. That number could be as high as ten, 
but Mavis had spent most of her life being quite careful about keeping all signs of her eccentricity, her mental illness, restrained. Now that she had retired from teaching, she could afford to become a little more eccentric, but as always, it must never come close to crossing the line. Six cats was a nice, safe number. Her teaching career had been a long, good one, and she had truly cared for many of the children who came through her classroom. As is always the case, some were nearer and dearer than others, but a number of her former students who had stuck around town regarded her warmly in their adulthood, even some of the ones she'd been strictest with. This established lots of goodwill. Goodwill was always important, should anyone start suspecting she wasn't as mentally sordid as she appeared. Now that she was retired, she volunteered up at the asylum. The asylum lay ominously up in the wild northern fields, like some stereotype from a gothic novel. It had been a mill for a long time, but right at the turn of the century, when manufacturing methods changed, a new plant was built over in Burrowsdale, and it was repurposed into an asylum. This area had always had a few more eccentrics than was perhaps normal. Locals joked about this being due to fairy blood from way back. They didn't truly suspect what she already knew, but this was a subject it was always best to keep silent about. As the town literary teacher, it had fallen upon her to run the school's two yearly attempts at theater, a fall play and a spring musical. She had turned out to be quite good at it, and residents from neighboring towns would all come to attend the performances, which were highly regarded. She had begged the council to let her run a drama program up at the asylum, and despite some resistance, she had enough supporters about town that it was eventually approved. Thus it was that every Saturday she would go up and teach a dramaturgy class, which eventually became a twice-a-week performance workshop. Mavis hated the asylum, even though she walked up there two to three times a week. A few of the richer townsfolk were able to afford automobiles, which were bit by bit replacing horses. But Mavis couldn't dream of affording such a thing, and in any case, enjoyed walking. She often commented about her thoughts on the asylum to the boy who always walked up with her. The boy no one, well, few others ever saw. Only the touched, only the crazy ones who were already locked away, something Mavis had no intention of ever becoming again. When Mavis was young, before she had learned how to cope with and hide her condition, she had been sent there for two horrible years. She'd been confined to a cell, given shock treatments, and treated terribly, she had lost all hope that there could be a worthy life for her until she met the boy, the ghost child. He never really spoke, although he could send her mental images, and in time a type of visual language emerged between the two of them. She, of course, could speak to him, and for a while sat in her cell and chatted with him a good bit, sometimes still did when they were alone together in her home. It didn't take a genius, however, to work out that her sitting in her cell talking to herself for hours on end was not going to ever get her released or stop the treatments, so she eventually cut it out. 
She knew the boy was a figment of her insanity, but he gave her a will to live, a resolve to at least appear to get better, that is to say, convince the doctor she was better. And for someone who was a figment of her delusion, he seemed to know things and be able to acquire information, valuable information, which he would show her as mental pictures. She would never have argued that it was anything other than her poor grasp on reality, but the information seemed to be accurate and valuable. It took time, but she was able to gradually give the doctors what they wanted, show them what they wanted to see. She learned to carefully hide all of her symptoms, a habit she would continue throughout her life. Thus, one miraculous day, she walked out, back into the spring air where flowers bloomed and the town began to wake from its winter nap. She kept a room in her home where she allowed her condition to manifest. Her condition wasn't anything of any sort of macabre nature. She was never ever a danger to another in any way. She made sure to never appear as anything other than normal and well-adjusted. The boy still appeared to her, though. One day, two weeks after she had left the asylum, he had ventured into town and showed up on her doorstep. He would do so periodically for the rest of her life, and she was careful to never acknowledge his presence in a way anyone other than he could detect. Few had known of her admittance. It wasn't the sort of thing you let get around, and over time, those few passed on or forgot it was actually her. She avoided the asylum completely until an incident had caused her to rethink her world. It was a Thursday night, and she was strolling home, the boy at her side, when they stumbled across old Herman, the town drunk, sitting against a building. He was well into a bender. He greeted her, and Mavis greeted him back. Then he greeted the boy and started talking to him in a familiar manner, even reaching out to rub his head. The boy was clearly acquainted with old Herman, and the very fact that he saw the child flabbergasted Mavis. She wanted to ask Herman directly if he could actually see the boy, just to hear him actually say it to her. But years of hiding had made her unable to dare speak of the boy, even with the man so intoxicated he wouldn't even remember the conversation tomorrow. It was after this that she decided to volunteer once a month at the asylum. This led her to years later stage dramatic performances there in her retirement years. And this is how she wound up in a room with a group of inmates she had come to love, who were unlikely to ever walk the fields free again, preparing for their final performance of a light-hearted comedy. This was, of course, the night that she wished them all a wonderful performance and reminded them their plan did not end with the conclusion of the play, that three hours after the curtains had closed, we're going to burn this place to the ground, dears. Well, there you go. Today's story. We here at the New Albion Radio Hour do take requests. And so, based on such a request, we present our song for today, performed by one of the members of our dear New Albion Orchestra. Take it away. 
Well, Tomatoa hasn't always been this glam. I was a drab little crab once. Now I know I can be happy as a clam. Because I'm beautiful, baby. Did your granny say, listen to your heart? Be who you are on the inside. I need three words to tear her argument apart. Your granny lied. I'd rather be shiny. Like the treasure from a sunken pirate wreck. Scrub the deck and make it look shiny. I will sparkle like a wealthy woman's neck. In just a sec, don't you know? Fish are dumb, dumb, dumb. They chase anything that glitters. Beginners. Oh, and here they come, come, come to the brightest thing that glitters. Fish dinners. I just love free food. And you look like seafood. Well, 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 little Maui's having trouble with his look. You little Sammy Demi Mini God. What a terrible performance, get the hook, get it? You don't swing it like you used to, ma'am. Yet I have to give you credit for my start and your tattoos on the outside. For just like you, I made myself a work of art. I'll never hide, I can't, I'm too shiny. Watch me dazzle like a diamond in the rough. Strum my stuff, my stuff is so shiny. Send your armies, but they'll never be enough. My shell's too tough. Maui man, you can try, 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 but you can't expect a demigod to be a decapod. Look it up. You will die, die, die. Now it's time for me to take apart your aching heart. Far from the ones who abandoned you, Chase. The love of these humans Who made you feel wanted You tried to be tough Oh, but your armor's just not hard enough I said, Maui, now it's time to kick your hiney Ever seen someone so shiny? Soak it in, cause it's the last you'll ever see C'est la vie, mon ami, I'm so shiny Now I'll eat you, so prepare your final plea Just for me You'll never be quite as shiny You'll never be quite as shiny